Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Things had gotten very loud <laughs> around me. You know, I, I, I heard everybody else's voice and I couldn't hear my own. So I took my time. I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Rita Dove is one of those guests whose resume kind of takes your breath away. She's the author of 11 collections of poetry, alongside plays, a novel, a collection of short stories, a collection of essays. She's collaborated with composers on song cycles and so much else. In 1987, she was the second African-American to receive a Pulitzer Prize for poetry. And in 1993, she was the first Black woman to be named Poet Laureate of the United States. She is one of the most decorated poets in America. In addition to the Pulitzer and the National Humanities Medal, she's received over 28 honorary doctorate degrees. Her most recent poetry collection, Playlist for the Apocalypse, is her first collection of new work in 12 years. She came on Thresholds to talk about that time, that 12 years, which she spent intentionally not publishing anything so she could relocate her own instincts, discerning the difference between what other people want from her writing and what she really feels she needs to say. She also came on to talk about her diagnosis of multiple sclerosis and how it demanded that she learn to walk and to hold a pen all over again. I feel that if there's no discovery at all when I'm finished, then my reader is going to be just as bored, you know, as probably I would be. Uh, so, you know, and I say that because, um, you know, some of the poems I will start because I have a line. 
that are, that keeps or a phrase that keeps going through my head and I need to figure out why it's doing that. Or there's a, a character, someone that I saw on the street and standing at a light and, and I think, you know, why, why, what is their life like? And then I go, so there's a lot of discovery involved in that. There are times when I think I know what it's about. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to write this poem and I know what it's about. And I discover something along the way. And, you know, there are times when I've, I've done collaborations, uh, with both interior designers and a lot with composers because I love working with musicians. And sometimes they have a very clear idea of what they might want. Uh, and, uh, so I, I will have historical moments to work from, but some, some discovery happens every time. Can you, uh, think of a poem where, uh, maybe a poem from this most recent collection where you sat down with a line, maybe thinking you knew what you were sitting down to do and then finding yourself surprised, uh, Mm. midway through. Let's see. Let's see. This is a possibility. This poem, um, it's called You're Tired, You're Poor. Uh, The title is taken from a line from um, Emma Lazarus' poem at the foot of the the base of the Statue of Liberty. And the the poem came from, in fact, a commission, uh, a, a group, a song cycle that was commissioned by the Copeland House to uh, write a series of poems dealing with the history of the of the United States and the world in the last fifty or sixty years. You know, something small like that. <laughs> <laughs> and and I was both daunted by this whole thing, and the, but but charmed, thrilled by the idea of writing a song cycle. Um, and so I thought, okay, let's choose different events along the last sixty years or so. The the uh, Composer Richard Daniel Poor was fantastic. He had had a, a a great and determined idea of what those events were, which meant that I could then present it with his ideas. Could say, no, 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 this has to go in there too, <laughs> you know. And so, uh, so there I was with a set of ideas, and one of them revolved around the year nineteen sixty eight, and the year nineteen sixty eight was a year of so much. Uh, just the psychic conflagration in terms of there were multiple assassinations. Uh, it was a time when we felt as panicky, I think, and, and despairing as we do today with the pandemic. And so this poem, again, I did, it started with the line uh, that, that um, the third line, which is grief is the constant now, hope the last word spoken. So it started with the third line, and I didn't realize that it, that that was not the first line until I started working on it. It turns into a modified villanelle, so these lines are going to repeat. You'll hear them again and again. You're tired, you're poor. Who comforts you now that the wheel has broken? No more princes for the poor. Loss whittling you thin. Grief is the constant now. Hope the last word spoken. In a dance of two elegies, which circles the drain? A token year with its daisies and carbines is where we begin. Who comforts you now 
that the wheel has broken is Mechanics 101 to keep dreaming when the joke's on you? Well, crazier legends have been written. Grief is the constant now. Hope, the last word spoken on a motel balcony, shouted in a hotel kitchen. No kin can make this journey for you. The roots locked in. Who comforts you now that the wheel has broken the bodies of its makers? Beyond the smoke and ashes, what you hear rising is nothing but the wind. Who comforts you now that the wheel has broken? Grief is the constant. Hope, the last word spoken. Mm, thank so the, you. The, the line that I, <laughs> you're welcome. The line that I started out with ends up being the last line, <laughs> you know, um, and, and not, of course, the first line. But I did not expect it to turn into a rhymed poem, to turn into a quasi-villanelle. As I worked on it, I realized that's really what it wanted to be. Um, I hope this doesn't sound like too facile a question, but how how do you discover how is it how does the poem tell you what it wants to be as you're writing it? I don't think that's a facile question at all. I think it's it's the one that that keeps coming around all the time. Um, and I can tell you that I don't know. It changes from poem to poem. Uh, I um, it's an idea of of listening. And being willing to step across the familiar into an area that seems uncertain or frightening. Um, it's so so I can I can start working on a poem and then something doesn't feel right or it's either the lines sound too secure or they they seem to know what. Um, seem to be very comfortable in themselves. And so that starts me looking uh, to see, well, what, what am I not hearing? What am I not, what voice am I not listening to because it's too inconvenient? Uh, so it it does vary from poem to poem. And, and you know, I, I will tell my students too, who are working on their poems and they, they're, they're trying to figure out how, why, why this is not exactly what they want to say, though it's what they feel. And I say, they're, they're, your tools are really language and silence. Those are your tools. And so when you find that your reason or your heart are, are kind of clouding the waters and you can't get it out, look at your language. Look at what you're writing. See if the, line, if the poem looks too fat to you. Don't question it rationally, but it does it seem fat? Does it fe- feel like it's moving too slowly? Then work on getting it to move faster. And it, it's sort of like unlocking. It's sort of like giving your 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 spirit permission to speak, you know. Uh, and uh, so it does change from poem to poem. Mm. I love that part too. Yeah. What was the? If I'm going to just dwell with this poem, stay with this poem for one more question. Mm-hmm. Um, if, can you remember what it, what the, the inconvenient thing was in this poem that asked to be, uh, paid attention to? The major inconvenience in this poem was the fact that it seemed to want to be 
a villanelle. They didn't <laughs> want it to have those lines repeating. And I'm like, no, no, I don't want to be trapped in that form. And then I realized, well, it's, in 1968, that's kind of how we felt. I mean, many people in this country, you felt like you were trapped in this this spinning around of tragedy and violence that just didn't, to be helpless. So to succumb to that and say, okay, then lead me. And how do, I did not want to dwell on grief. I'm not the, the kind of person I, I'm not a a, per, a pessimist who likes to just wallow in misery, you know. And so I didn't want to have to repeat, "Grief is the constant now, hope the last word spoken." That just seems so dark. And yet, the poem said, "No, that's where you need to dwell. That's where you need to dwell because that's how we felt when first, you know, one person gets." assassinated, Martin Luther King Jr. gets assassinated, and then Robert Kennedy gets assassinated, and the country's erupting in flames. You know, this is where we were. So that was the inconvenient thing. Hmm. You were saying earlier that the, the sort of the scope of the project, um, of that project, felt a little intimidating because it was so vast. But a lot of your work, to me, reads like it's touching on on vast things, on vast themes, mm. and uh, or it is vast in its scope, maybe. Um, and I'm wondering how you find entry points or ways to ground yourself when you're sitting down to write about something big. Mm. Well, I always enter through a little crack, <laughs> a little crack in the door, uh, or something very small. It just seems to, it seems to me that when we, at least for me, when I am confronted with the enormity of a situation, the first thing I do in life, I'm t- talking about writing, is to concentrate on something small. I start to pick a cuticle. You know, I'll uh, wonder if I'm got the right clothes on, things like that. It be, it's because, you know, you really want to grasp onto something real and, 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 and graspable, actually. Uh, so when I have a, a large topic, I rarely enter a poem thinking, this is the large topic. Um, the song cycle was a difference. I had the large topics first. But usually I will say, okay, I, I will listen for or look for some detail that is arresting, that is that is going to help. What was helpful in that poem, interestingly enough, when I think about it, is the fact that there's a line in it uh, where I say, um, in a dance of two elegies, which circles the drain? Now, no one else will know this, but I remember that when we went to Australia, my husband and I, once. Of course, I wanted to see if the water circled the drain in the opposite direction. (laughs) (laughs) And that's such a teeny thing. But somehow it popped into my head as I was circling these two elegies. And it helped me, helped me actually get a sense of how that, those lines were going to, the, the two repeating lines were going to circle the poem. So it was a teeny thing. It, it, it was a toe in the door, right? You know, and, and, and I went. Oh, that's amazing. Did it? I, I've heard it doesn't. 
was the did the water circle in the opposite direction? It was inconclusive. <laughs> I couldn't remember how it circled on this side. This is so sad. Uh, so I I do not know. Though <laughs> so I think the cows faced a different direction, but that was a different story. Wait 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 wait. As, yeah yeah I know. The, the as cows? we drove the cows as we drove past cattle. I saw them all facing one direction. I said, but no, in the no, they they faced a different direction. I realized that it was had something to do with the sun and where we were, but um it seemed that they were facing uh differently than they face in the United States. And um I don't know. It's one of those things, you know, where I think I know and then I come back over here and then I don't remember what it was like over there, so who knows? It's something for someone else to figure out. I mean, more public thresholds, like most important thing in life and think moments when I noticed that the, the time plates were shifting, so to speak, uh, would have been when I got the Pulitzer and I literally was sitting in uh, my kitchen, sweep, well, I was not sitting, I was standing, sweeping the floor, uh, trying to prepare for a surprise birthday party for my husband, who was turning 40 that day. And to switch from that very private moment to have the, all the lights kind of come on, you know, and was amazing. It, of course, also changed so much because I think every poet, every writer actually, uh, cherishes those um, intensely quiet, intimate moments in one's life. And poets expect to be ignored. And so, you know, suddenly <laughs> I was not being ignored. I'm like, ah, both terrifying and wonderful. What happened was, you know, this was my third book, Thomas and Beulah, that got the Pulitzer. Mm -hmm. And up until that point, I had, I mean, I had had a fair share of, of success in terms of I had a job. <laughs> you know, this is a very big piece of success, actually. But but I was a, a poet who taught at a university uh, to other uh, aspiring poets. And um, it was a, a quiet literary life. I'm actually I'm, I'm quite an introvert. I was very shy. So it was helpful. I, I figured I was just going to have a small, hopefully the dedicated, you know, kind of audience if ever I had, whenever I gave readings. And suddenly I had to give a press conference. You know, the first of many. And I didn't know what, I mean, I knew what a press conference was, but I did not know how in the world I was going to manage this. And I remember that um, the chair of my English department at that time, who had called to tell me the news uh, because my home phone number was unlisted. And he said, uh, I'm setting up a press conference. And I just practically wailed into the phone. I don't know how to do a press conference. And he said, you'll learn. And then he hung up. He was smart. He hung up before, you know, I could even cry more. And I've said this to myself ever since that time. I've said, you'll learn. Every time I hit another moment where I've got to do something different, my life changed because suddenly there was an interest in poetry. And I became a kind of a lightning rod for that. It was a very special time. I was the youngest person who had been named 
uh, to the position as it was titled then, um, new the poet laureate. And uh, the first African American, uh, you know, uh, in that position uh, since Gwendolyn Brooks. It was, I mean, who had gotten that that prize since Gwendolyn Brooks? Uh, it so it there was a buzz around it, and it it really literally felt like the difference between standing behind the curtains working the backstage area and having the curtains open up and the lights come on. That's, I mean, it really felt that way. Uh, and so the the question, the, the difference, one of the major difference began how, for me was how do, how, how do I regain that intimate space in order to write and, and not to allow reactions from the outside influence the troubling stuff that you need to get through, you know, in order to write a, something that 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 really means something, and and that became a, a one of my major struggles, I guess. What did you come up with in your in your <laughs> pursuits? I'm laughing now. Um, well, it, it again, this is a big problem, right? <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a really major kind of thing, a uh, change in lifestyle. So I started to look more toward toward details. It was really a matter of, at the beginning, just finding time, finding the time to write and finding optimal time to write if possible. Now, it turns out that I am a night person. I really have always been since I was a kid, since I was a baby. My mother said I played in the dark in the crib. So uh, I thought, well, can I make sure that if possible, I can work at night when no one will disturb me, but also when I am at my most energetic and then I'll have, and, and then you know, I'll have more time to do all the, the pub and press stuff or whatever during the day. And so that that was a manageable or semi-manageable problem, right? You know, just mark out these hours in order to write. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about what you're going to write. Just, you know, mark out the hours and see what happens. Uh, I also kept and still do, um, but in a different form, a notebook. I keep lots of notebooks. Um, and my only criteria was whatever stops me for an instant in my tracks. And I don't necessarily, it doesn't mean physically, but you know, even a, a just, I, I noticed something, something seems wonderful or horrible, write it down. It's a word, write it down. If it's a recipe, write it down. Do not ask why or is this important? Because again, I'm trying to listen to whatever is tingling on the edges of, of consciousness. And just to know that I'm working with a notebook, it was something to hold on to when I came to my study or to my desk and was starting to write, I could leave through multiple notebooks and see if something, you know, just started to, to bubble up. Or I might have had an idea that I was dying to get to and then I could go there. But, but those little things helped me kind of hold on to uh, that, that, I don't know what you want to call it, the island in the mind, you know, that, uh, that is so, I think, necessary in order to, to speak out 
into the void in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And where, I mean, where are you on that journey now of, of cultivating your island in the mind or the solitude I've, necessary for it, the feeling yeah. of privacy? You know, it's it's interesting because I, I I thought I had it all down pat, you know, but of course life changes and changes. I thought I had it all down pat um, through the 90s, I guess it was, or 80s or 90s. I could um, work at night and then I could, um, when I say work at night, I mean like midnight to four and then get some sleep and then teach afternoon classes, stuff like that. And then social media started to bubble up, which means that you're accessible 24 hours a day, pretty Mm -hmm. much. Uh, And uh, especially with international context. So it was very hard to get the internet. And I think everybody complains about this. So I'm not going to go on a lot about it, but just the, the, the constant bombardment of the internet and social media now you have Twitter and all these kinds of things. So um that 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 changed things. Also I um discovered years ago uh, that I had multiple sclerosis. And though it is under control now and uh you know I take my medications and stuff. One of the two of the major uh, things that have happened with me are fatigue so I do get tired um, more easily. And I've lost a lot of the feeling in my fingers and my toes, which meant that I had trouble writing by hand, which was one of the solaces I would have after a day of of other activities to be able to physically connect to the page so that I had to learn then how to write on the dreaded screen that contained you know, the email and the, you know, and the Facebook, it was all there hovering in the background, humming and buzzing. And I'm learning how to recompartmentalize. Let's put it that way. So it's, but, but that's what life does, right? And that's why I I said at the beginning that the, the, the whole idea of thresholds is so fascinating to me because it just seems like we're always going through these, this, this, this threshold is, a variation of an old one, but it's still there. I'd love to ask you about this beautiful new collection, Playlist of the Apocalypse. And I know it's your first in... 12 years, is that right? Your first poetry collection? Yes, it is. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the process of how how it came to be? Sure. Well, <clears throat> one of the reasons why it's been 12 years since I've produced a, a, a brand new poetry collection, I mean, I did have a um, collected that came out a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but was was one of them the reason was precisely learning how to write again i had to learn how to walk again i had to learn how to write again it's kind of interesting oh my gosh. Uh, um and it's the writing learning how to write again in terms of the physical quality you know losing the ability 
to really write with a, a pen or a pencil. I can write with a pen or pencil, but it starts to, if I get excited, it starts to jerk. I can't control the muscles. So that means that, um, of course, hopefully you want to be excited, you know, if you, as you're writing. And so as soon as I got to the good part or the discovery part, the pencil would go sailing. Um, so that was difficult. And as I tried to learn to manage that and also learn to manage and, and to not let the disease control me as much as possible, uh, I thought, well, you know, the poetry was going to come slowly, and it did. One of the other uh, difficulties in those 12 years has just been I wanted to make sure that what I was writing was what I felt truly and what I felt was necessary, what needed to come out, and not what other people wanted to hear. And in other words, I did not I did not want to mistake any kind of admiration or praise for uh, truly the, you know, being a, a good poem or a good book. And things had gotten very loud <laughs> around me. You know, I, I, I heard everybody else's voice and I couldn't hear my own. So I took my time. And part of that time, I actually did not publish poems in magazines because even though I was writing slowly and these poems that are in this this volume do span those 12 years. There are some in there that are maybe even older. Um, I thought, no, we're going to all stay here nice and quiet until uh, I can, you know, we can look and make sure that, that you're true and that you're not just like running out into the limelight. So that was another, the deliberate, you know, refusal to um, put them out there until I was ready. What did you think other people wanted to hear? I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, in, in a way, you know, I, I've i been called, I know people have called me a, a America's public poet, and I'm, I, I'm such, to me, that, that feels like not what I am at all, or, or what, I don't even know what that means, to be a public poet. On the one hand, it seems to me that, that every if you look back to the origins of 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 what poetry is and, and narration, it is something that was meant to gather the emotions and the events of a community and 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 put them into some kind of way which would give people pleasure even when they heard the the bad news. <laughs> you know, uh, so so it is something that is public, but at the same time. Uh, the idea of a public poet getting on and giving vast oratory, uh, you know, speeches, that's not me at all, uh, I felt. Um, I feel like every time I write a poem, every time I read a poem that that I love, I feel that there's a whole uh, combustion, I guess, or conflagration happening inside. I feel like there's a whole universe of stuff just tingling inside, but it doesn't feel like it's outside of me. So that's one of the reasons. I, I don't, I think they also, you know, as an African-American woman, that the public may have expected every poem to be about race or about being a woman. And 
my feeling is that my poems are about being human. And that includes and certainly predominates, I think, when it when it comes to being an African-American and being a woman. But don't go into it thinking, oh, well, yeah, this, you know, this is part of the, the feminist agenda. I want people to feel that, you know, that they, I want them to, to, to be in the poem and feel it from that point of view. That's why there are poems, there are poems in here told from a male point of view, you know, poems told from the oppressors in Black Lives Matters, you mm-hmm. know, um, and, and thinking you, if you don't, if you cannot get into the mind at least a little bit and understand someone who is radically different from you, then there's no hope for any of us, is there? So that's another thing, to avoid the stereotypical, I think. Yeah, you just touched on something that I had wanted to ask you about, which is how many different voices there are in this collection. It feels like uh, you are in conversation with with many, many different voices and also occupying or trying on um, the voices of all, all, all different kinds of people. Um, and I was hoping you would speak a little bit to why that, why that feels like an important piece of your work. Hmm. Yes. Um, it does. It feels absolutely vital and, and important to me. You're absolutely right to, to, to include many voices. Part of it is because I've, as a shy person, as a shy woman, as a shy African-American, being on the sidelines is a place that uh, I can be I can be pushed, let's put, or assigned with very little effort on my part. Being on the sidelines means that you watch the mainstream and you learn how they move, how they think, in order to be able to swim it, right? And that means many voices. It means listening to everything. I mean, I don't know. I, I've always felt that that because I watched my parents and I watched their generation too. I watched them know exactly how to talk when they entered, quote unquote, polite society. And then they would come home and it would be different, <laughs> you know. And then the, the relatives would come together and it would be different again as we kind of moved further back into some kind of a southern uh, uh past or ancestry. So I watched all these different levels of voices. Also as a as a musician, I, I was a cellist for many years. When you don't play the melody, and cellos get the melody sometimes, but you know, there are times they're supporting cast, so to speak. You really have to listen to all of you and sometimes you have time to listen to all those different voices coming in. And the the uh, orchestral Oh, I don't know, the orchestral lushness of all those voices is something that I think is fantastic. And it's not a melting pot. Because a melting pot suggests everything just goes into one big, you know, gets it melts away all of the characteristics. It's a celebration of all those characteristics and all those voices and how they can come together. So that's part of my 
uh, I think in terms of, of literature, in terms of writing, that's part of the thing I, I relish. You know, you need the cellos, but you also need the piccolos. How long did you play the cello? I played the cello from about age 10 to 35. Well, 30. Then I switched to viol da gamba, which is an early instrument. It's fretted, but it's they have a... Uh, you know, there's a, a bass gamba that's about the size of a cello. I switched to that. Um, and um, after that, it was mainly as, as my, my career as a poet began to demand more travel of me. You know, a, a cello was a little difficult to drag around and also to find people to play with uh, in, in, in chamber orchestras. So after a while, I, I did... St- finally start taking voice lessons, classical music lessons, because I couldn't take my cello with me and I needed music. I would have been a musician if I had not become a poet. That's another threshold, yes. <laughs> yeah. You. What do you mean when you say you needed music? Gosh. I think hmm, I grew up simultaneously reading and dis- the, you know, the discovery and the rush of of what reading and writing could mean at the same time as uh, the rush of discovering what music could do to to make it to play it so i i started playing cello when i was 10 that was about the time when i started reading on my own books that weren't necessarily assigned from class and were beyond my understanding, my ken, I guess, but I could make it. I could figure them out. I could skip through them. So those two paths of discovery went side by side. Um, I think that there were times when playing in, uh, for instance, a, a string quartet, that when I, that I would discover how to move through a poem because I was learning how to blend and to rise and to dip uh, sonically in the in the string quartet. So they went side by side. It was part of me. And I also believe that a poem in some way, what distinguished this poetry, um, I guess you could say technically, not spiritually, but technically, from the other writing disciplines, is that is the fact that it does sing at some point. It 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 has it pays extreme attention. I think almost all poetry pays extreme attention to the way in which uh, language reverberates in our bodies. Um, it also pays attention. It can pay a lot of attention to the visual aspects on the page, or but but that idea that that it's almost meant to be intoned, almost meant to be sung in some way, is something that is one of my personal, I guess, mantras. So music was really important to me. I would I would go to my cello and play uh, when I was stuck on a poem, you know, and vice versa. Uh, so. To start taking voice lessons was a way of carrying the music with me. And uh, then I discovered I was a soprano, which was absolutely not what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an alto because that's closer to a cello. But yeah, hey. <laughs> it's the, it's funny. I uh, I grew up singing too. And ah. uh, I, was an, 
I'm, I am an alto. And when you were describing where the cello sits, that, you know, you, you don't mm-hmm. have the melody, you have the harmony. And so you have to be listening and hearing everything. And, and you're not singing to be heard primarily. You're, you're not singing to right. be heard the loudest. Um, is just sounded exactly like what you're talking about with the cello. I can imagine it. you must have been crestfallen to be a soprano. <laughs> oh, I was just, yeah, I was crestfallen, terrified, angry. I'm like, no, I don't want to be there. Uh, but that's what it was. But it also helped the poetry or influenced the poetry because it uh, to carry the melody, I realized, also meant that you were being carried. And so you better listen. You know, to everyone, you know, around you and to dare to speak out and to let the last vestiges of that timidity, to to let it fall away, because it wasn't about me at all. It was about the music, what you had to sing, what you had to say. That helped in terms of the poetry, too, how to step out further on that branch, right, and sing. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what it feels like to be publishing a collection now after a break, after taking so much time to kind of just listen to your own voice and your own intuition and really determine what you want to say. How does it feel to be kind of stepping back out on the branch and singing, (laughs) singing for the public again? The branch feels very thin. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's interesting. It does feel like almost like the first time. And I say almost because the first time you publish a book, it's sort of like, hey, nobody listens. But it it does feel like it feels very raw and and new. Uh, There are more personal poems in here. And it is, of course, a period of 12 years. So I knew people were going to be wondering about that. And there's, you know, revelations in there that I, that I had not uh, disclosed before um, because I have had a uh, mess for, you know, many, many years. And, but, uh, so it did feel really, really scary, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> Yeah. What was there a particular fear that you that you had or conversely a particular hope? The fear part is easier to answer, I guess. I I feared that by revealing the personal aspects of this these past 20 odd years that that talking about MS that uh, people would respond with pity instead of reading the poems and, you know, being able to be moved by them as poems as opposed to what their subject was. I think this is something I've always uh, worked hard to make sure that it didn't happen. I didn't want to be read um, merely as an African-American port. And when I say that, I mean, I don't want to be, be read and have people say, ah, yes, this is the Black uh, world. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it exotic? I wanted the poems to be read as, I want some, someone to say, these are good poems, great poems, not um, these are ooh, Black poems, <laughs> you know, or poems about women, how wonderful. 
read the poem and be moved by the poems, be moved by what they say and feel with them instead of for them. Uh, so that was my biggest fear, I think. My hope, this is the interesting part. I, what did I hope? I guess that's entailed, uh, actually encompassed by the fear, the hope that they would be read as poems. And also a sense of, of um, that it's a book not meant as a downer, uh, even though the title may sound a little bit, uh, a little bit scary, with a playlist for the apocalypse, but th- that it th- that they're meant to be like a musical playlist, something that you can play throughout the day, read throughout the day. Uh, there are poems that are light. There are poems that are very, very dark uh, to match your mood to help you up. You know, it, it's it's an accompaniment. It's a And so that's what I was hoping that people could understand that the key word in this title, in a way, is playlist and not apocalypse. (laughs) Do you listen to music while you write? Interestingly enough, I used to, and now I don't. I was just thinking about that the other day. I I used to always have music on. Uh, Well, I shouldn't say always, but but almost always, um, there would be some kind of music. It would, uh, it couldn't be with voices because that would, I mean, someone singing words that would get in the way, um, unless it was in another language. And if it was opera, then yes, I could listen to it, and it, I would have it on repeat. And you know, my poor husband would be like, "Really? Do we have to listen to you know?" <laughs> Carl Mirbent again. So um, I used to do it all the time, mostly jazz. And even now, if I do put music on, it's going to be jazz or blues, oddly enough. But uh, lately, since the writing of this book, I have been writing in total silence. And the other day, I remember my husband said, we could put some music on, you know. And I said, yeah, we could. <laughs> and then we don't. I don't know what this means. I really don't, John, but um, I'm waiting to see. We'll see. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.